I, I I didn't know how to do it for a second. That's why I said one, two, three, check. And yeah, then, yeah. You were like check one, two, three, clap. <laughs> my brain uh, neurons are like reconnecting. I just listen I had deadlines and I just like I all I do is think about deadlines and I get grumpy and then I get real grumpy and then I get snappy and I just don't think I'm like a real good fun person because I'm now I'm mad I'm hanging out with people and not doing the thing which is I was already not doing the thing but I need to like not have people around me so I don't want to blame them for me not doing the thing does this yeah. make sense I mean I feel like during grad school you were so good at coping with the stress you uh, still seemed happy to hang out with people <laughs> I am happy to hang out with people. Um, that's because I was probably high on drugs. I don't know. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Don't make everyone think that you were some like beatnik, <laughs> like out by the bleachers in grad school. Like, no. <laughs> uh, I was like just sometimes high, like from marijuana. Yeah, I would. I'm not. I'm definitely not cool enough to do heroin. And not that heroin's cool, you guys. Whatever. Okay. Anyway, welcome to Fascism Podcast. <laughs> I'm Hope. I'm Jackie. Um, we talk about art and fashion. We read, you know, memoirs and articles and about theory. And then you kind of like get to hear us process it, like live. <laughs> Not live because it's recorded, but you kind of hear like our first stab at understanding it. I think that's a good way of saying it. Listen, like, yeah, we look at stuff. We read sometimes the things we're looking at. And then we say thoughts. What are my opinions about it? We sometimes write them down. And then I come over to Hope's house and I speak into this thing called a microphone and say my opinions that I had thought about. And Hope responds. And she does the same thing. Yeah, we're real life friends, even though we haven't seen seen each other in two weeks. This is like our space to kind of nerd out because it's kind of hard to find someone who's willing to just like freak out with you about like situationists and like Luddites and just like all these topics that like sort of relate to fashion, usually relate to art. We're not like so, so strict about the the theme always. But Yeah. yeah, I hung out with a friend Tara and hi Tara if you're listening she comments she's been listening she loves the pod she asked me what was trending for me which I was delighted by and she said that she can't tell the difference between our voices which I mean she's a new friend she doesn't know me that that well but I was still quite shocked I thought that when I first started listening to podcasts with two women as well I'd have to be like which one's this one and which one's that one I need to know yeah totally it takes me a long time with some podcasts but if you're listening for the first time Jackie is louder but I think that doesn't matter when you're editing (laughs) I know but sometimes you go like Ah! like you just you make more like i'm more like i sound like a stoner Uh like from california like my vocal fry is like a little bit more developed than yours yes 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 yes. uh would be how i would distinguish us i say things like i have marbles in my mouth i have a very tiny mouth and i literally feel like it's just not wide enough for for all the the things i want to say wow yeah that's poetic and (laughs) also very literal (laughs) Um, yeah, if you like the podcast, you should rate it on Spotify 
or tell someone to listen to it, share it on your social media because, you know, that helps us out and otherwise we might quit. We're going to hold you hostage to this. We need five stars or we're no- you're never going to hear from us again. <laughs> yeah. But for real, we do need five stars. We do. <laughs> like That's the currency of being online. <laughs> so please, please give us five stars. Do whatever you're doing right now and head on over and just give us. It's just easy. But also maybe even leave a comment if you, if you dare do that. I appreciate you. Yeah, it could even just be like, I like this podcast. Like, you don't need to. It's not an essay. You could even give us five stars and say what, really, honestly, whatever you want. You could hate us. That, yeah. Get, but still give us five stars and then f- write your real review. Yeah, okay. F these hoes, five stars. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jackie, what's uh, trending for you? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, planning. Planning is trending for me. I have been applying to a bunch of jobs. I essentially work three jobs at this point and i'm also applying for jobs is one of your jobs the podcast i have two jobs with duwamish valley basically two separate jobs and grant writing and start basically essentially doing all this stuff dang this is why you don't see me so there's a lot of me organizing around that and i'm also like looking at planning jobs so i've applied to like six i think i might be losing my mind because i just like I'm staying up late, just turning, like, I'm like, I'm writing a whole new resume right now. You know, like, I just get into those spaces where I'm like, I need to do this now. And I lose my mind. Anyways, so, yeah, I made a whole new resume. That's not what I'm saying. Planning. Me applying to planning positions has made me look into what is planning, really. And the ones that are for people that are just applying like me, like, and trying to get into the planning world, into the public sector planning world. It's a, it's a lot of land use positions that are open. So I was like, so what is this land use thing? And now I'm realizing it's probably the one thing that can make an impact on climate change in our structural setting. Like, it's the way that we can control urban growth. It's like the way that we can like reserve the the little land that we have left. And I find that interesting. Um, Like actually keeping cities from growing, like literally just capping the growth. Yeah, it's like so boring. It almost flies under the radar, but I think it's like really, really important work. And I think it's intentionally kind of played. I'm like, why? I keep on applying to these places. And like the people that like I did this like pre not pre interview but like this informational sesh for this one in Portland and they just all look like boring they look boring they just look like boring people and I'm like why do you have to look like that I mean they're crunchy it's not even like crunchy they're like they're nerdy this woman had glasses hat she looked like a business boring business lady in the public sector you know what I mean like And just like, is it the bureaucracy of it all that makes you, turns you into like... It's just crazy how few jobs you, like, if you, like, the people who look cool are just like tattoo artists and artists. It's like, there's very few jobs where there's like an associated aesthetic that's like interesting at all. Yeah. And I'm, but I'm just also like the way they talk. I'm like, snooze fest. Dude, they couldn't add a little flair, a little fun, a little like, yeah. and like just little sound effects. Just right. Be like, I don't know. Like, yeah. I couldn't add that. Yeah. It's the dearth of personality in the workforce makes it really easy to be charming, to be honest, where it's like you tell one joke and everyone's like, oh my God, oh, she's a real hoot. 
<laughs> and know. the joke isn't even like it doesn't hit the layers that you could really go right right it's just like it's it's work humor you know yeah i feel like there's sneaky ways to to make the world fight uh, climate change and normal people don't know about it because it's like you'd have to learn land use policy i'm learning a lot <laughs> and i'm just like land use is where it's at it's gonna be really boring which i'm fine with in the sense of like day-to-day tasks yeah right but I think it's impactful. And city of Portland's really interesting. I've been learning a lot about planning. You probably heard me on my Instagram story. But they have basically they just passed city of Portland residential infill project, meaning there's going to be no single family housing units zones, which is huge. There's nothing like it in the U.S. at all right now. And it's part of their urban growth boundary agreement they set in the 70s to basically combat growth, but also like provide equity for the all of urban life here's my one thing about that yeah i i mean you know i work in planning now also and so we talk a lot about density and density is seen as objective positive i think in planning but i think a lot of the people who are making these decisions they live in single family homes Mm. like you and i both live in Mm. middle housing we live in middle housing it's it's, it's still a house but it's it's been retrofitted to to house more than we have yards yeah and i think like having a connection to soil is so important that i'm like absolutely no I'm, I'm not disagreeing to that but there have been i when i went over to this is where my brain's going because it's like this is why planning is important and, and there needs to be radical planet planners and there needs to be radical politicians but that's just but anyways when i went to leon france they talked about this like the socialist kind of construct of like affordable housing for all and this one guy he built his built his thing and he was like no building should be more than like three levels because he wanted everybody to be closer to the ground so yeah. they could see gra- greenery. Yeah. And they intentionally had like a tree placed in every front of every window. Like there is there, – we could have infill that isn't like high-rise apartments. Yeah. It's and just we, not single family. Just not single family. Yeah. That's a big thing now is like the middle housing. And like a lot of the projects we're doing is like focusing on middle housing, which I think is cool. There, there is opportunity to like – I think the system needs to exist so we can start contemplating like what is a residential infill project and like denying right. and, and yes, saying yes and no to plans. But like I do think we should think about – the need for green space yeah. and everybody needs green space. Right. Like, I mean, obviously we think that, right? Well, like, it's like, cause I mean, Seattle, some of the density projects are like kind of like efficiency studios that seem to me like they'd be for like an Amazon worker who just moved to town, like someone mm, young gross. with no standards. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't, the you know, they're not built to encourage community. Like this is why I'm into it. Yeah. I'm also planning to go to Portland, Oregon, to drop off my computer my last day. I watched one Frank Lloyd Wright, Ken Burns documentary, and now I'm like, where are all the Frank Lloyd Wright houses? And I'm going to go see one in, like, it's near Portland. There's only one in the Pacific Northwest that's public. There's, like, six total, but they are lived in by people, which is wild to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know he did the Guggenheimer? The Guggenheim? Yeah. Like the museum in New York? The Heimer. <laughs> yes. I did not. I didn't either. He did. He died before it opened, like two months before. And fun fact, his, not fun, his him and his mistress hooked up, right? He was like, no, I'm going to live with my mistress. I love her a lot. Built a whole house for her and her kids and his kids to stay in Wisconsin because he loves fucking Wisconsin. And then this lady, and then his uh, mistress was like, they hired people, right, to like be maids, essentially. And then he... 
she fired this handyman and his wife, uh, who was also like a cook one day. And so the handyman was like, yo, I'm going to grab some gasoline to clean the windows. And she was like, yeah, no problem. And Frank Lloyd Wright was like, I'm leaving. I'm going out of town. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright gets a telegram being like, uh, your mistress and all her kids, uh, they, they burned down the house. And he, the handyman got an axe and chopped everybody that tried to come out. That- he killed them all? Whoa. That's a Frank Lloyd Wright story, y'all. We don't know about that one. So she died. His mistress died. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Dang. I just needed to tell that story because I was just like, what? They told it in the documentary and you're like, what? I mean, just imagine someone being so mad at you and you're so unaware. Like, I always think everyone's mad at me, you know? And to, and like, this guy was so mad at her and she was like, here, yeah, come grab some gasoline. Well, because, I mean, there's a dynamic, obviously, of like servitude kind of happening. Like, I'm sure they don't give a shit. They probably are aware that they don't, they're angry at them, but they don't really care, you know? Anyways, what's trending with you? <laughs> um, Trending with me is like... Generally wanting to detox. Um, it was I listened to the last episode actually again, and I was talking a lot about drinking in it. You know, we had just gone out and whatever. That was like on Saturday, and then that Monday, Brian and I went to happy hour with his coworker, and like it was a pour your own beer thing. So it was like you could try beer. And, like, you didn't have to, like, there was no trans Like, the absence of the transaction, like, did make me drink more, I think. Mm. Except even though, like, as you're pouring it, you literally, it's like when you get gas where, like, the number, like, you see the number go up of how much, like, money you've spent. Anyway, we had, like, three beers. And, you know, on a Monday night and the next day, I just, like, felt like absolute shit. Like, I couldn't really, like, my brain wasn't working. And I just was like, you know what, dude? Sounds like, like bad beer, honestly. That's <laughs> in my opinion. Maybe, maybe. Too much sugar. I don't know. I mean, it was probably like also, you know, Saturday was a lot, and yeah. then I didn't really give my body a break. But I, I just don't really want to drink. I want like, I'm not gonna do the cold turkey thing because I think when I do that, it's not really like a lifestyle shift. I'm trying to just like make alcohol less a part of my life, mm-hmm. like. So I've been drinking a lot less and I was talking to my sister who, you know, is a, in epidemiology and she was talking about how like a ton of studies have been coming out showing like how bad alcohol is. Canada just like reduced their number of drinks per week you can have and still be considered low risk. I'm assuming for like insurance purposes, like now for women, it's like two drinks a week to be low risk. I don't know for like cancers or whatever. I don't know, like the alcohol lobby, her, she, her prediction is that like drinking is going to become like smoking in the future where it's like kind of seen as really unhealthy. Like people are like, oh, she smokes, you know, like, I mean, boomers mostly, but like it's kind of, there's like a stigma, you know. I feel like people our age are really stigma about it. Like the people that give me the most shit are people my age. Okay, yeah, fair. So smoking is stigmatized and her thing, she was like, yeah, I think drinking is going to become that stigmatized. Whether or not that happens, it's just like the alcohol lobby is so strong that they've like convinced us that drinking's not bad and it just really is it's expensive it's like but boy is it fun it's okay you don't even like drink you never drink and i don't know why (laughs) 
I, it's because I'm more poor than anything. Um, but yeah, I also just like, I think I'm just stressed out all the time to the point where I'm like, if I drink now, I will drink, I will go hard till 3am and then be hung over the next day and not, and then spiral. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, if I'm anxious when I start drinking, it's, I like, if I, it like makes me want to drink more. And lately, like weed has just felt super super good Mm, yeah weed's great it feels like it's kind of scary because it almost reminds me of taking a stimulant i mean it is a stimulant but like there's been a couple times that i've been working on a project and (laughs) the way you're trying to be like not talk about what you did (laughs) well yeah okay fine yeah like i was literally just working at my job (laughs) and i took i like had some gummy and i like ended up like just like pouring over these stuff. Like it felt like I was engaged. Like so much of the work day, I just don't feel engaged because right. it feels like I'm just get carried out to sea and with my computer and I'm just like tip tip typing away. It's just hard to always feel like. You can't always be engaged either though because that's taxing. But Right, right. And yeah. But it just felt really good to like fully be like so like being pulled and driven by my interest rather than like the fact that I – had agreed to be there doing that and similarly with like working out and stuff it's just felt like so much more nourishing of a substance for me lately Mm -hmm. um that's where I'm at but then we met I met Brian like some of Brian's new friends on Friday and one of them made dandelion wine and uh can't say no to dandelion wine yeah it was very sweet so it was like it it snuck up on us yeah, I think I used I made wine once underneath like the sink. You have to do it in a moist area. I'm pretty sure. I don't really understand the point of there being dandelions because I'm like I'm pretty sure it's just the sugar. It's pretty much you just need sugar because I think I made mine out of juice. Yeah, it's like it's whatever, and I think it's just like oh, it's. I think you can make alcohol out of the dandelion leaves. I've seen. I've like heard. I think she used the flowers, but it's like the it's like you could have whatever in there, you know, it's like not like the dandelions are like important. It could be whatever, but I think it's probably it's like cuter that it was dandelions. Anyway, we were supposed to go out to dinner and we just got home at we like walked home at eight PM and just like literally fell asleep. So this is an example of why I don't wanna just I don't know. Yeah, I just don't want to drink that much anymore. There you go. Anyhow, how do we transition into our topic? <laughs> Speaking of bloated tummy <laughs> yeah <laughs> we got a solution for you corsets ever heard of them yeah it's actually not a solution it's a critique a cultural history critique um i read the book i mean read the book i read like four of the essays um that can be easily strung together as a whole but also you could read them separately and still learn a lot what? it's called the corset of cultural history by valerie still valerie still's a fucking badass and i watched Minnie lee's corset video that she did and she like basically was like no i use this book oh okay she's like it's pretty much and yeah and from what i read and what she was saying i was like i was like i knew exactly the quote she was using at that point you know i was like okay i could have done this video you know i she also talked about uh vivian westwood doing the punk thing and i was like i know a lot about this too Mm. you know we're getting there we're getting our own degree in fashion history we really are So what made you want to do this topic today? Well, I mean, I'm interested in corsets because I feel like people treat them like 
we've been freed from them. Yeah, like burn, just, burn the bras, burn the corsets. Yeah, like, ooh, like they were this, this like way of confining women. And I'm like, dude, we are still, we are very much oppressed. The, the freedom of the corset is meaningless. And it's, you'll see it's changed into our physical being. Actually, now we have like body shaping that's like diet and exercising, which is, I would say, worse. Yeah, better to just like have a garment that, that like gives the illusion of. Exactly. Don't work out. Just like tape it all together and lie around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, just mold me into the shape that makes me fuckable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so i just like i just feel like i genuinely wanted to know more about the corset because it is treated monolithically like it's treated like this experience that women had to have and thankfully like feminism freed us from it and i'm just like that just seems so general and like i knew it couldn't be right and there's just so much nuance to close over the time of like history like and beauty standards change with that and the corset is an element of those beauty standards it's like we almost it's like we treat it as like a really specific thing like the hot the hobble skirt which existed literally just for like 10 years in the 20s whereas like a corset is almost more comparable to like a dress where it's like it's had different identities and meanings yeah because it's shaping the body but also shaping the clothes like which is all cultural and individually at the same time like it's yeah i was just interested because it just seems it seems like there's a lot of nerdy layers to it that i could get into and then i was right and i don't think there needs to be another book honestly this book covers it all read it yeah it seems like a good one it's the cover doesn't like call to me the cover doesn't call to me either i hate the cover it looks like a textbook i bet it is a textbook yeah yeah i definitely have that image of like someone helping someone lace it up and it's like painful yeah, because that's what the media always shows, even if it's not the right time error for, like, lace corsets. And, like, you also see the image of people back in the day, like, not having clothes underneath and, like, you're just seeing it on the skin. People would not wear, especially boned corsets, straight onto the skin. There is, like, a shirt underneath it usually. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to go over the brief history of the corsetry. Corset, I forgot how to say now. Corsetry? Yeah, is that how you say it? Why do I? I took a little bit of a gummy and now I'm like, what is words? <laughs> corsetry? Yes, corsetry. Corsetry started as like an aristocratic count culture and then, of course, gradually spreading throughout society to working class women. Aristocratic count? Yeah, like the court. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what I meant. My handwriting was bad and I was copying aristocratic court culture. That sounds more right, right? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, unless they're all countesses, like, they could be counts, but I don't know what a count is. Me neither. Confidently. I just like think it's Dracula. Right. Kind of it's, as time went by, it spread down to regular working class women. Plus women wore different kinds of corsets throughout time, like I said. And the real question being, tightly wore strings or corsets really laced? I think that's a question that we should be asking <laughs> in these contexts. This is how you, the one of the questions that this woman in Valerie still gets down to, you know? She's just like... Are we lacing that tight? And of course, it depends on factors. Most in early times, corsets were called stays. So I'm going to be intertwining corsets and stays. Maybe I'll probably just say corsets. Because they kept your boobs to like 
they got your boobs to like stay in one place essentially that's what i i that i don't i didn't look up the word of why but that's what i thought too i was like oh good because they make your everything stay yeah it just stays right where you left it i'm like that's what we should call corsets and i get it yeah but i don't know if that's the reason but the smallest stay of the 18th century which would means like what the 1700s why do they do that i know it's weird i'm like why and we're not talking about that enough i always feel smart when i'm like yeah 20th century <laughs> Oh, that's the 1900s. <laughs> just my, you minus one. <laughs> it's just always minus one. <laughs> well, I'm just so confused who decided that and like why we decided it. Like, I guess because zero doesn't exist. Yeah, dude. The other day I had to ask my sister about like BC and like how that whole calculation works. And does she have an answer? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> of course she does. Um, She's like, real quick, let me bring out the essay that I wrote about this, actually. Yeah. Wait, okay. So then when did corsets start? Or like when was the first one? There's a lot of like mythology to how uh, it started. The origin myth of the corset almost always incorporates several key themes, okay? It's argued that it began in ancient Greece. That's a big one. I I would not not think that. that. Why? Because of togas? Because of togas. Yeah, this girl loves a toga. And she's like, I've worn many. I have known. There's no corsetry at all. Uh, yeah, it's one of the best parts about a toga. <laughs> Such as Greece or Median Crate. I don't know what that is. It's probably near Greece. It's in, you know, that area. Alternately, the first corset, a torturous device of steel, is also a- attributed to a particular European aristocrat. Usually, it could be like any aristocrat. They're like, they'll rename you know the myth the myth the myth changes but Catherine de midi which i have no idea who that is she wanted like a 13 inch waist and she they made this like iron the corset of the woman like was made out iron and it was just like very torturous for ideals it's 13 inches or 18 inches i think she wanted which is very tiny but like like i said like the smallest day or, i didn't say this yet the smallest day in the 18th century, only measured to 24 inches. So kind of normal. I mean, 24 inches is tiny, but still like, and the largest one being around 30. It wasn't like super small, like yeah. what we see later in like some of the periods where people are like trying to reach 18 inches. Okay. We don't know a lot about underwear, of course, obviously. That's like, because it probably biodegraded. Yeah. 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 Just between us and God. Did you see about that uh, bog woman that got found? Uh-uh. People think like there's a lot. They find b- bodies in bogs a lot because right. they think it was like sacrificial or something. Uh, well, and it's like anaerobic. So like they don't break down. Yeah. That's what's so cool. And they like can find out what people ate that day. But yeah. There so was what? a reason. Was the, she wearing the, undies? I think so. <laughs> i was like why did i bring this up anyway bog lady check her out um of the course seat course it implies that such a such a great uh garment has often or always been a component for civilized dress Ernest Leoti, there's going to be a lot of French names that I'm not going to pronounce, wrote in this French naming book with Le Corset as the beginning, I'm not going to say the rest, in 1893, that he argued that the modern corset combined the best features of the Greek zona, which is which, uh, like a fabric that shaped the waist. So that's it was kind of like a toga, and then they like w- just kept spinning around, okay. essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were like, look at my waist, just like baby. Just a little cinch. Yeah, exactly. A little pinch, you know? Yeah, exactly. You got it. A fabric wrap, as they will. Yeah. 
and the strophium and the mammalium of Rome, which supported the breasts, the tits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I've heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, he's saying a good corset gets both. Okay. But so in Rome, they had two separate things? Well, they had, in Greek, they had zona, and then in Rome, they had strophium and mammalaria. Well, I don't, I know I'm saying those words wrong, but they are the, they're basically the booby stuff okay. in Rome. In yeah. Greek, they were like, boobs, flip-flop everywhere. We care about the waist. But Rome was like, boobs need to be made of steel, right. you know? So, right. and that's just how it was. And he's saying uh, a good corset combines both of those. So that's kind of like, it's the side, like why I think a lot of people cite like Greek in that era area as the place where corsets were started because they do have some like basis kind of stuff going on okay again we don't know a lot so but there's also no sign of like a full corset or restriction of other time other than just a good fitting the second component of the origin myth emphasizes the role of an individual woman this is what i was getting to a queen who is associated with a cruel torturous fashion Thus, the author of fetish- fetishistic book, The Corset and the Crinoline, Line, claimed that metal corsets were customarily worn in the time of Catherine de Medici, when extraordinary tenuity was insisted on 13-inch waist, so it was 13-inch, being the standard of fashionable elegance. This Is that sta- like 13 inches lying flat, or that's like literally 13 inches around? Round, baby. I know. I mean, this isn't true. This statement is inaccurate in all particulars, as we shall see. It's just like they use, again, they just kind of like use this myth as a way to like, I don't know, push an agenda for small waists. It's just like a, like an, it's, you need to have a story to why this exists, uh-huh, I guess. Uh-huh. And I think people just So you're use saying it. that, of course, it wasn't actually 13 inches. Like, Kath, they sometimes use this girl name, like, Anne, Queen Anne. Like, they just use it. It's, it's like connected to aristocratness. And that this woman wanted a very tiny waist. Okay. So that's like, yeah, copy paste. Add, yeah, they don't really care. It's not really necessarily in truth. Yeah. But it it did come out of somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, there do exist in museum uh, collections. Like there are some corsets in the collections that are iron corsets, which are dated from 1580 to 1600. But they're usually they were noticed as like medicinal. Or, like, made for to help correct people's spines. Oh. And it seems like there was, like, it came out like there was two types of corsets appeared in the 16th century. Fashionable corsets created by tailors, which sometimes incorporated metal um, and as well, well bone, which is what why we use the word boning mm-hmm. and well, well bone stays. And orthopedic corsets, like I was saying. Okay. So, like, do you think that they were making them to correct posture and then... They were like, oh, wow, she looks so hot. <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. Because, like, a lot of, like, the beauty standard that we'll see come out, people are, like, like erectness. And, like, mm. you'll see those, like, I don't know what period it is I'm going to be like, but, like, how that woman has, like, a big bump in the back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, but she's, like, firmly straight up. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking Isn't about? Isn't that, like, like – uh, like Vivian Westwood did a lot of that. Yeah, right? yeah, she did. But it's like it's all about being stiff and standing straight, which you know it makes me want to stand. It makes me want to get a corset just to correct my back. Yeah, just to have around. And then like that, actually, corsets were like used for a while to like help people correct their back. 
And metal corsets were like the way to do that. Um, and they were even sometimes recommended in the 18th century, which means the 1700s. <laughs> Correct crooked spines, although canvas stays were more commonly used then. And indeed, orthopedic uh, corsetry continues to be used by doctors today as part of the treatment for scoliosis. And one of my favorite, like, or not favorite, but she's a YouTuber. She does, like, focus only on, like, pre-World War One stuff mm-hmm. and really Victorian stuff and Edwardian stuff. She has scoliosis, and she showed her, like, scoliosis corset that she's required to wear. Oh, wow. Does it look – what does it look like? Just, it's not as fashionable as you would think it should be, but – it's I mean, just I would it's black. That's if, all I can remember. Have you ever seen like a one of the shoes they give you when you break your toe at the doctor? It's like I wouldn't expect a medical garment to be. You no, know they should really try to be. I think that I'm going to throw that out there to doctors that are listening. I hope we have at least one. Yeah, like make that boot cute. Kaiser X like Gucci <laughs> collab. Sorry if I look at my phone. My phone was dead for like three to four hours today, so I missed out on a ton of. Uh, yeah, no, I. <laughs> <laughs> you're catching up now while on the podcast <laughs> mostly i'm just checking our tiktok Jen. i know i mean i i gotta say i haven't said this i need to put this on the record hope is really carrying the weight of our tiktok right now and uh, thank you because i just have been feeling inspired you're welcome <laughs> and they're brilliant thank and if you, you don't uh, see the fucking brilliancy go on tiktok right now and watch it and tell me they're not brilliant because they fucking brilliant and by the 15th century fashionable european ladies often wore dresses that lace clothes so as to make them fit more tightly so this was like the precursor to a lot of corsets and something that we see later in modern clothes or modern dresses when they were doing like couture they would like use corsetry in the dress and lace in the back, mm-hmm. essentially not having to use a corset corset itself. Yeah. So in it's like just runway fashion and couture. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Couture, couture, couture. I think couture. Um, this kind of fitted and lace dress might be considered an immediate precursor of this corset. The other precursor of the corset was the basquine or a vasqueen, a lace bodice to which was attached a hoop skirt. Vasqueen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Write that. That's a... Th- Dude, this podcast is just about you gassing me up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's. I feel like what I do on a normal basis most of the time. I think you're fucking hilarious, and I'm like, no one else ever hear that. Like, <laughs> this is a Spanish style corset that was like, again, that was also potentially a precursor. And dressmakers began to focus on the constructing a separate bodice and skirt for it, rather than a one piece gown. A higher priority was placed on how well clothing fit fitting to the body and it was easier to fit clothes over a firm foundation it became apparent as like clothes began to develop that they wanted to have a corset more as like a base that's so interesting to me like like you can't you need a hard surface like why i i think it's easier to lay the clothes on when eleanor de eleanora de medici by birth a spanish princess was dis- disinterned and her clothing removed from the grave it was revealed that she was wearing a velvet bodice fast- fastened at the center front with 18 pairs of hooks and eyes the bodice measured about 24 inches around the waist over it she wore a satin bodice that laced up in the front 
the first true corset date from some time in the first half of the 16th century, when aristocratic women began wearing whalebone bodies and began to incorporate more rigged uh, materials such as whalebone, horn, and buckram. The style seems to have originated in Spain and or Italy. Yeah, so the ladies call a well. This is a quote from this guy in 1579. He said, "The late the ladies call a whalebone." This is how he talks in the 1579. <laughs> the ladies call a whalebone or something else in the absence of the latter their stay, which they put under their breasts right in the middle in order to keep a straightener. So where are all these people getting their whalebones? From whales. Where are these whales coming from? They kill whales. They used to kill the fuck out of whales. Yeah, I know that, but like like people go actively whaling like in the atlantic like where where are these like i know (gasps) i do not know anything but they know they're all like great sailors that was our whole thing right especially spain yeah i mean we're actually recording on columbus day fuck that guy but like speaking of sailors that were from spain but he wasn't even spain i think he was italian or something yes right yes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the less we know, it's better, honestly. The fact that early corsets were known as whalebone bodies is extremely important because the way it blurs the distinction between fleshy bodies and the garments that cover and fashion them. That's important. The role of the body, and especially the female body, as a site of significant signification is implicitly emphasized. Okay. So it's called whalebone body. Okay. I think it's just like her point of being like, Listen, the corset and the body are like intertwined. Right, right. How many, okay, how many corsets do you think you can make from one whale? Oh my God, good question. May, depends on the whale, right? Yeah, let's say like a big, pretty big whale. <laughs> like a, a gray whale? Sure. Oh my God. Hope. Like 20? Hope, 100? like a 300, 500. Really? Between three and 500 people, okay. depending. It'd be like, it's like, a whole collection of corsets per whale. Yeah, it's pretty. I don't think anybody does that anymore because we have plastic. Right. And now we know that whales are like, you know, poetically majestic. Beings. Yeah. I think we might have known that too back then. Yeah, that's fair. And they were like, listen, we don't, we love whales, but we also need to keep our boobs in place. Oh, yeah. We need our, but they also used the fat for oil. Right. Yeah. Right. Queen Elizabeth of England, uh, for example, purchased a pair of bodies of sweet leather. I'd spell it crazy, like a you know old English. And several years later, in, in 1583, another artist, Ian William James, made her a pair of bodies of black velvet lined with canvas, stiffened with back buckram. Again, like this, the way they fucking talked back then. <laughs> I like how it's like as if you're like listening to a recording and commenting on it it's just like they they haunt me they come into me when they it's it's also the literally the way they write it feels like i can't help but like sound like that yeah days could be closed or open decorative or plain underwear or outerwear okay this is also where i found out that queens and kings had dwarves to stand next to them okay to make them look taller that's like tom cruise in all his movies they do that. They like. <laughs> they like <laughs> oh my god! No, they yeah, or like he makes he like demands on the red carpet that like no one sh- like tall because he's short. Yeah, exactly. Oh my! But yeah, the Queen's George Thomason. I also like found out about this guy named Thomason. Like I went on a deep dive, and this guy like ended up getting like in a fight in a duel, and then got arrested, and then like 
fleed and then he got like pirates picked him up and then he was like a this is a dwarf a queen dwarf a formerly a queen dwarf and then he went into like a slavery for like 25 years and then escaped after yeah Whoa. and then like the queen like recognized him. i don't know like i was reading his wikipedia and i was like dude what i didn't i had no idea this wasn't even a thing man ADHD is fun when you uh, <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, want it to be. Okay, so anyways, the Queen Dwarfs, like Thomason, received two new pairs of bodies in 1597, one apparently in outer bodice or a visible corset. And I'm like, yes, they have fucking style. Okay, so they'd wear it on out the outside of their clothes. Sometimes, yeah. Trimmed with silver lace with a stomacher of white satin and attached sleeves. The other one was a pair of French bodies of damask lined with... Socket clothes with well bones. So it was existing during like the 16th century. See how I did that? See how I did that? Okay. And then most por- portraits, of course, show only like stiffened outer bodices and not the the stays underneath. Okay. Um, but however, 1595, 1600, an artist painted a rare depiction of a woman who is only partly dressed. So people, historians got a, like a better idea of what was going on. It shows her stays and tabbed, and then the front is laced. And the bones are set vertically. And according to the dress historian, Naomi Tarrant, the countess has left her beautiful embroidered jacket undone whilst she does her hair, probably because she would not have been able to lift her arms with it fastened. Oh. And here, I want to show you this picture because it is that the the coat is fabulous. Wow. I'm, it's kind of crazy to think the 16th century was had such scale, but they did. I We had so much better clothes back then. Yeah. For the rich, mind you. Right. Anyways, moving on. Like, imagine if there was, like, a Shein version of that dress. Oh, yeah. Like. It would be so sad. Yeah. <laughs> this is, like, there's, like, embroidery. There's, you can even tell in this painting, there's, like, just detail to the to the jacket itself you you don't see anymore i see people like doing like sequin work on tiktok and it's so impressive to me that people have the patience to like sew individual sequins on shit i know i really want to and i really want to do that because i do think it is beautiful and it's a way to make a simple piece of clothing more fabulous and fun yeah Right, you don't have to have like intense like tailoring knowledge, right? Exactly. Bedazzle it. So time's going by. It's somehow still fifteen ninety five. <laughs> <laughs> to ensure that the wearer maintained an erect posture, a piece of wood metal or some other hard metal was inserted in a slot down the center front of the corset, or was tied in place with a ribbon. Doesn't sound that much fun. The stay busk was sometimes decorated with uh, amorous images or phrases. One metal busk from the 17th century, 1600s, made for Anne-Marie-Louise de Orleans, Duchess de Pot... Jesus Christ. Duchess de Montpensier. This is why I stop reading sometimes. When there's like long names like that, I'm like, I can't. I'm done with this. Yeah. I got bored halfway through. You're like the GBBO people trying to pronounce guacamole. (laughs) <laughs> Did you hear about this at the Mexico episode of GBBO? Everyone's... What's GGBO? Great British Bake Off. Oh. They did an episode on Mexico and like literally they're like Pico de Gallo, <laughs> guacamole. Like they couldn't pronounce anything. And then, yeah. Guacamole makes sense, quite honestly, if English is your like language and you first saw that yeah, word. Yeah, but it's like, I, I agree. It's just that they pronounce, they like cook so many foreign dishes and they always can pronounce those ones. Yeah, yeah. Like especially they're French or something. Yeah. Like- yeah. 
Okay, so Anne-Marie. Louise de Orleans is decorated with a crown and four day list as well as a text. How I envy you the happiness that is yours. Resting softly on her ivory white breast. Whoa. Let us divide between us, if you please, this glory. You will be here the day and I shall be there the night. This is like what was written on the stick that kept her mm-hmm. pocket. It's like, it's like sometimes I've bought underwear and there's like really intense things written on the underwear. <laughs> it's like Victoria's Secret, that like, that <laughs> quote all on the ass. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I... It's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So let's keep that in our brains for when we, yeah. So when we go visit, we have to find this Anne Marie Lowell oh, stick for sure. For sure. Um, okay, other 17th century busts, variously made of metal and horn, decorated with images of Cupid, a heart pierced with arrows, flaming heart. Honestly, my vibe. I love. I love a heart. I like heart piercings. Um, moreover, the 16th century soldiers did wear what was known as French as a corselet. So men did wear corsets. Okay. And armor that covered the torso. The similarities between the male and female corset were noted by contemporaries. And this guy put it in his poem of 1591 entitled Pleasant Quips for Upstart Newfangled Gentlewoman. These privy coats by art made strong with bones and still and such like wear. Whereby their back and sides grow long, and now their harvest gallants are, where they're, where they for use against the foe, our dames for Amazons might go. That didn't help me at all, actually, make sense of no. anything. I don't know. I'm sorry I put you guys. <laughs> but essentially, I think what she's trying to get into is to make people understand, like, chorestry, although has been dominated by female bodies, it has existed in the world of men and men have been a part of that it's not such a it's not a it's not just such a female again monolithic thought yeah, process right not just like a object for oppressing and manipulating female bodies exactly but allegory images of rome and women and roman style body armor existed at the time but gustin's reference to bones and still make it clear that he's describing fashionable corsets not those entirely of metal and they even like trained some little bitty babies in infancy um as as a 16th century text on women's childbirth put it, a young tree, if it's kept straight and bent, keeps the same shape as it grows. Oh, wow. They're like, what's it called when you make a tree in a specific shape? It's what like, is that called? You took a class on it. Well, when you make them small, bonsai. Bonsai, yeah, or yeah. Or when yeah. you like a spalier a tree. Yeah, it's like when you make it go like straight out. But yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Balier your baby. You can make your baby into like a living fence. I like that they have, like, I mean, landscaping details on here. They're like, yeah, we ke- we know how to keep a tree straight. Yeah, right. Just wrap some stuff around it. Sure. By the 17th century, girls as young as two were miniature corsets to support their body. No way. Yeah. And prevent deformities of the skeleton. Huh. I wonder if they had more or less scoliosis. I wonder. Maybe they probably had better posture than we did. We do. Well, yeah, they weren't hunched over their computers. Amen to that. (laughs) They were free. Although you kind of like hunch when you sew too. (laughs) But they were probably like, they had a corset You think they wore it while they did chores? They just like wore it all day. I think it depended on your class, of course, at this time, for sure. But it doesn't really say here, but I'm assuming the babies were rich. This was rich babies. One must be put there in the small stays, which are a little stiff if you want to keep the waist under control. Little boys were also put into stays, and at least until they were breached at, at about age six. So again, this is more about erection, not at the penis. 
a, pe- a penis day. It's like a corset condom. <laughs> oh, my God. I wonder if they've come up. This is the what Viagra doesn't want you to know about. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're, we're opening it wide. A polished and disciplined mode of self-presentation uh, was important for members of the elite, and the control over the body was established through a range of social practices from dancing to dressing. Indeed, it had been argued that European aristocrats were inclined to regard their body as a work of art. So it was like seen back then. This is why it's important to under... You can't look at something from a past without understanding the cultural nuances of it all. Like... The prestigeness wasn't in creating a defined waist. It was more in the erectness and control of the body that was existing because they wanted to exude this form of almost perfection. Yeah, posture. Yeah. And it, the civ- the civilness. Look at them. They have such control. Um, people that don't have control are pathetic. Pores. Yeah, I mean, it's like we do try to control our bodies now still. It's just like through very different means now. It's like that's how they were doing it then. Yeah, at least the wealthy elite, were, that's how they were doing it then. That's how they established themselves away from the rest of the other people. That's how it made them better than other people. It's better posture, better sense of, I don't know, dance moves. But even their dance moves were probably just not fun, you know? The, the discipline of aristocrats days was thus inseparably linked to court dis- display and physical self-control. We see here the diffusion of cultural model, writes the French historian Daniel Roach, that of an uprightness copied from the Spanish and Italian courts, which reshaped aristocratic silhouettes conferred on posture, a proud, imposing theatrical form manifesting the qualities of a soul and the virtues of a state. And there was a lot of, like, there were basically a lot of reports saying that, hey, not real great for you, not healthy, these corsets. There was, like, a lot of drama of, like, people dying. When? End of the 16th century. There was, like, this one autopsy report that included perhaps the first medical account supposed death by tight lacing. Whoa. Too tight binding the abdomen and parts used for breathing can cause suffocation and sudden death. One recent memory happened in 1581 in the church of St. Nicholas de Champs when the young wife of Jean de la Forest blah, 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 began to bound and compress in her wedding dress, came from the altar after having taken bread and wine in the accustomed manner, thinking to return to her place, fell riggedly dead from the suffocation. Whoa. She was buried the same day in the same church that she just got married in. With saying that, you got to take that with a grain of salt because, like, people were poisoning each other left and right. Who knows what happened? Could have been bad food even. Who knows? We don't really know the situation. I love what a corset apologist you are. <laughs> I'm like, Yeah. Anyways, it does say here that it, that's entirely possible that she got poisoned uh, by her conveniently widowed spouse or her mother since the two of them hastened to another town to marry each other. Whoa. Why did women wear corsets? A number of sources suggest that they did so in order to attain a slender waist, which was perceived a great beauty back then and still to this day, you know, like... Obviously, they did it because they wanted to look good, okay? Everybody, duh. And also to be erect. Um, I'm going to move forward now. Another discourse considered the production of stays. Since the Middle Ages, the production and the sale of clothing in much of Western Europe had been organized into guilds, such as the Tailor's Guild, which was dominated by men. So when corsetry became more of a thing in the 1600s, in France, it began to specialize in making stays directly um, for women and children. Because you remember how children are still like, were, were the trees... Yeah, yeah. The stay maker was a specialist when considerably technical skills could make this stay, essentially. Theoretically, most professional stay makers were men. 
In reality, however, the production of clothing, including stays, was divided and sometimes hotly contested between male and female workers, both guild members and clandestine workers. I mean, you can see an engraving of this, like, French stay maker's workshop um, where men were cutting and fitting stays while women were sewing them together. So that's kind of essentially the divide. Taylor's wives and daughters even assisted them, and widows were often permitted to practice their husband's work. So sometimes the when dudes died, women could have the right to take over their shop and just be full-on stay makers. But that was pretty much the only way to obtain that. And other women were also employed more or less legally as a seamstress. Yet French men stay makers refused to permit women to join their guild because they're fucking dicks. Because they're always dicks. Reading this stuff, I'm like, you don't understand it. It's too complicated. uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're like math. It includes math. And they vigorously oppose women's clandestine production of clothing, which competed with their monopoly. Of course, they're really just scared of you've taken their money, baby. So when they when they come at you, just remember, just say, hey, you a hater. You a hater, dude. I see right through you and your insecurities. Jackie's business advice to women in the 1500s. <laughs> yeah. Stays were constructed from six pieces of heavy linen and, or canvas, including two pieces of for the shoulder straps. And whalebone was usually stiffening material. And the same maker did require strength and skill to cut numerous strips off whalebone into thin slices of uniform thickness, which was then inserted and stitched into place. And then and men were like, it's way too complicated for women to understand. So don't even try. I mean, apparently it did take a lot to break well bones, which I'm like, but didn't they have tools? They weren't doing it with their bare hands. Yeah, were they like chopping them with an axe? Well, like I'm curious. There was like a tool specifically made to cut well bones. I'm sure. Which is wild to think about. And like, just like gut, like gutting it, the whole thing. They probably didn't do that. They probably they probably like sold them to the stay makers as bones that they didn't have to probably gut the well themselves. But that would be hilarious in the sense like they were like full a hand to to mill process of the stay. Right, right, right. (laughs) See to stay. Oh my god! Now we're giving marketing advice. Stays were cone shaped with tabs at the base that flared out over the hips, kind of like this. Okay, but they're like the kind of the ones that we've seen historically done by uh, Vivian Westwood too. Like how she has some kind of, no, she has various, she has tons of different kind of corset settings, but this is more or less like tight fitting, like tight lacing corsets, but it does, it, it does help exaggerate the hip bones. That almost looks like a little jacket. I know. I love this so far. Because it has those sleeves. It's a sleeved pair of stays. Okay. In silk, in pink silk. At the, and this is at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which we have to go to, too. 18th century staymakers often claim to understand anatomy and to produce these healthy stays. Mm, oh, wow. Um, and again, it's like going back to orthopedic. Deferment of Paris, for example, claimed to have invented stays that supported the body without constricting any of it, not even under the arms, apparently, is what this quote. A design that supposedly won the appropriation in the Faculty of Medicine and the Royal Academy of Sciences. Hey, I would try it. Wow. I would try it. Doctor approved corset. Yeah. In 1675, um, Dressmaker Guild was formed in Paris, okay? Um, Which was legally entitled to make a variety of kinds of clothing for women, girls, and boys under the age of eight. Because, you know, after that, it's a little femme to be wearing corsets, okay? Nine? Won't have it. Right. Won't have it. The establishment of the guild was supposed to support female modesty since women who wish to 
uh, could now have their clothing made by women, which is kind of funny because it's contradicting like how we perceive corsets now, uh, cor- corsets now, which is like very seductive. Yeah. But this is for modesty. Modest, modesty. Oh, it's well, I guess it's like the way we think of not wearing a bra as not being modest. It's like yeah, yeah. Was was supposed to support female modesty since women who wished to could now have their clothing made by women. Uh, provide financial support for working women and in quarrels between tailors and dressmakers. Um, so this was an opportunity for women to join this guild. Um, however, dressmakers were specifically forbidden from making bone stays, and the tailors um, continued to battle over this and other issues. Dude, the gatekeeping. I know, because it's it was such a moneymaker, I'm sure. Uh, resenting the dressmakers' competition. Tailors often invaded the dressmakers' workshops, seizing garments, and even physically assaulting female workers. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It's so rude. It's just like the levels men will go just to make sure they – I mean, like, we we still make so much less than men. And I'm just like, is it, do we need to start physically assaulting men? Is that what we need to do to finally get the one-to-one? Oh, man. Anyways. The vulgar hands of men have held the delicate waist of women in order to, to measure it too often. Uh, and that was what uh, they were arguing. A lot of these drug dressmakers and members of other female guilds were like, we've had enough. So they were like, it was like, we don't want any more of these like men making the, like touching us and making these things. We want to make them. Yeah. Women making women clothing. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. It's like how you want a female guy now. Exactly. Exactly. It's the female body. It's like, notice the shift in emphasis, whereas 16th century dressmakers had only wanted to be allowed to work alongside tailors. A century later, women workers have begun to argue that they alone should make clothes for other women. Feminism! The feminization of the French clothing trades were was underway. And later in the 18th century, the guild structure itself increasingly came under attack and reforms instituted in France in 1776. Do you know what else happened in 1776? Yeah, I, uh, I heard about it. Permitted women over the age of 18 to join the Heathrow Mill Guild, including the Tailors and Staymaker Guild. So big shifts happen. Yeah. Big moves. In 1776, women were finally kind of allowed to enter the guild. I'm sure it was like super hard. I like the idea of like someone bringing up 1776 and you being like, oh, right. <laughs> Women were allowed to join the... In France. Not anywhere else. The situation in England was also similar. Um, like women were asking to be the stay makers um, for women. And it was said that most women lacked the physical strength necessary to raise walls of defense about a lady's shape, which I thought was a funny little quote. Although it was admitted that girls of strength might be able to make hooped petticoats, but not a stay. Um, One observer, however, professed to be surprised. The ladies have not found out a way to employ women stay makers rather than to trust our sex with what should be kept up as invaluable as Freemasonry. I don't know what that means. Nope. (laughs) Nothing. Okay. By the late 18th century, as stays became less heavily boned, the craft gradually fell into female hands. So the softer it got, the easier women got into right. it. Right. Somehow there's an analogy there that I'm trying to make. But the softer it was, no, because that's also sexist. You right. know, no. that's the whole reason it's the problem is because it's sexist. Yeah, yeah. 
And this book also, I'm not going to be able to get into the fetishization, kind of talks about like how the corset itself is like, almost, it's so erect that it's like very penis. Really? Just because like the... I mean, I get the it. Cone, yeah, but is, it, that, is that like... I think that's what some men... It's it, They also like, they were like, fetishization that happens, especially with a corset, is like 98% men. Is it fetishized because it's hard or is it fetishized because it's like binding a woman both of those things and like you know makes the tits go up yeah but tits go up and hard to move it's about control again you know was it necessary for women to hold on to something while being lace that was a question that the book asked and i'm gonna give you an answer for it i'm guessing no in the 18th century yes in the 18th century which is what when is that when was that um 1700. In the 18th century, yes, it would have been helpful. The corset lace was put into starting at the bottom and was zigzagged through the staggered holes, the top where it was tied off, which makes sense. When you have to like zigzag when it's laced up like that, you do have to pull to gather, kind of like when you pull at your shoelaces, right? When such stays were tightened, the wearer was liable to be pulled off balance if she did not hold on to something. Um, this arose partly because she was at one end of the tug of war and partly because when one short section was pulled up after another, the pull was likely to have been first from one side and then a lot of moving and shifting and like pulling going on for the 18th century corsets. Were stays uncomfortable? Comfort is a relative concept, according to Valerie Still, which absolutely she is correct. Yeah, like I feel like life was uncomfortable at the time. That's exactly what she gets into. Got it. For many centuries, it was not regarded as a particular important thing, which is crazy to think about because I do think about comfort as my number one goal. I'm constantly like, my feet hurt. I have to rest. I'm slightly cold. Yeah. I need to put on a pair of socks. Exactly. My tummy hurts. I'm going to lay down. I'm, I'm sure they got to do laying down a lot more than I did. But they probably like constantly had a stomach ache. Probably. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Probably. After all, many things were inevitably uncomfortable from one's teeth to one's clothes. That's what she says. And some 18th century women did complain about the stays were uncomfortable, even very nearly purgatory. Others implied that discomfort was less important than the results that might be obtained. The idea that one must suffer for beauty was a very common concept. Which is, you know, same. Exactly. That's what I'm kind of like. Beauty standards change and develop. It's not the corset's fault that people have put. We do like, we wax, we get laser hair removal. We like. Exactly. Put chemicals on our hair to dye it. It's like. Yeah. We're not free. There was no freedom. I think like there's this illusion that they're giving, especially in media and and, and films. Like again, they're like, how difficult it was to be a woman back in those days. Mm -hmm having to fit into these confined... I'm like, we are doing that just differently. Yeah, it's like more expensive. It's more expensive. And then like I, like I said earlier, it's about the body itself for like getting surgery to surgically do what, of course, it used to do. It's like, which I think it's own bad thing. Yeah, like the expectation for women to look natural is like more oppressive because then we have to like literally alter our bodies <laughs> so that we look... like quote-unquote naturally beautiful okay this is one of my favorites okay in 1775 a year before the french corset guild opened up famously (laughs) the english woman miss delaney wrote to a friend i hope miss sparrow will not fall into the absurd fashion of ye wass wasted ladies i don't know why i went country or like southern but we're going there dr pringle declares he has had four of his his patients marchers to that folly 
indeed wickedness. And when they were opened, it was evident that their deaths were occasioned by straight lacing. I feel like that it, it felt perfect for that, even though she was an English woman. So they died by corset is what that said. That's what she's saying. And she's saying like it's wicked when people tight lace, which is what I kind of like uh get into if i were if we had enough time we're already at an hour 20 but do these kind of like all the additional info can be tiktoks i know that's true look at hope's trying to guide me in my social media journey (laughs) just trying to guide the listeners to know that you can always find either additional info or us for me a lot of times it's like oh wow i now have a new take on what we just talked about yeah it's usually like us getting together for the first time and discussing stuff and then you're like wait hold on was i wrong (laughs) i need to look into this yeah Yeah, so tight lacing was like done now by like wicked nasty ladies you know you know it was not done by the modest good english woman it's just interesting so tight lace was associated with french French women, how dare they? Tight lacing was definitely also a big factor of the Edwardian and the Victorian style. And uh, so, like, the people that did it were, like, sex workers and, like, it Tight lacing? Yeah. Especially in the 19th century. Okay. We're up to the 19th century. Tight lacing was called a wasp waist and it was like to really have a small waist you know only like actresses like those kind of like bohemian types Mm. slash like i don't know sex workers basically essentially would wear these kind of corsets tight laced as such Mm. it wasn't common and socially recommended for women that wanted to get married oh interesting you know what i mean so there's this this chapter or essay about fetici- the fetishization of tight lacing started to kind of pop up more. And throughout the 1890s, the 20th century, and other periodicals such as Modern Society, Society in London, published letters from advocates of tight lacing, cross-dressing, and the rod. I don't, know the, I don't know what the rod is, but that doesn't matter. Pornographic books such as The Experience of flag- Flagellation, you know, the classic one, by an amateur flagellant who also continued to cite the cite some this magazine EDM about flogging school. Corporal punishment was, of course, a real feature of Victorian life, especially in boys' boarding school, but author, other aspects of tight-listing scenarios seem more fantastic. There was this, like, correlation between, like, a bad bitch, like, at a school... That happened a lot with tight lacing corsets. And it happens in the media now. We kind of see that mean, like, um, headmistress. And she's, like, in a tight corset and, like... Oh. And that's, like, a fetishization that was created in these... Oh, interesting. They had, like... They had that kind of... Archetypical... Archetypical... Yeah, like... Yeah. And they would always... It would always be, like, based in Vienna and all these, like, exotic places... And because they thought they were like hotbeds of tight lacing and cross chasing. In 1893, for example, somebody wrote, VS wrote to say that he had been sent to Vienna where both sexes lace up tight and the school was run by a retired officer. All his pupils were required to wear stays. Discipline was enforced by the principal's two late lacing daughters, one of whom was 17 years old and had a 14 inch waist. Um, But these weren't actually necessarily based in truth. And but it, it's this kind of like fascination with control and um, sexualization of control and course corsetness is like part of that control. Yeah, yeah, 
you know and like it's all kinds of comes together and it shows in this porn in the like in the porn world wow yeah it the boarding schools were super popular because again it's about control and the correspondence may well be related to the existence of specialized brothels where male clients could engage in what today is known as a role-playing. There's no evidence that special tight-lacing boarding schools existed, either in England or in exotic foreign cities such as Paris and Vienna. However, it is known that 19th century brothels frequently did contain wardrobes of dressed-up clothes, including nuns' habits, which recall pornographic fan- fantasies of sexual misbehaviors in convents. Whoa. That like a lot of these like letter writers um, assume these characters are from like wealthy backgrounds. Okay, wait. So it had a reputation for being for sex workers, but also for people of class. The corsets in general of are people of class, and these were this was based in England. So, so they were like all these boarding schools in Vienna. They everybody wears these tight laced. It was like a place to not to be outside their social like cultural norms and just be like and also a way they could dream up a sexy scenario of it okay. existing yeah 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 that does make sense to me anti-tate lysing writers argue in contrast that practice is seldom seen in good society but only among servants and other low lower class women so that's the that's the 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 thing that's funny because writers are coming in like showing people that tight lacing or writing as like tight lacing people are coming from the aristocrat world but people that uh were anti-tight lacing were like that can't be true that's impossible only sluts and pores tight lace yeah how, it's like whenever people want to demonize things they're like yeah poor people do it exactly and this is also like Sexual and gender ambiguity is a characteristic of fetishization of photography. And, of course, it's a big part of that during this time because your photography is happening. Of course, there's going to be, like, porno photography, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First up. That's, like, probably the first thing the camera was used for. Yeah. And then, like, fetishization and kinks are also going to be played out in that world. I wonder who the first person to have their tits photographed was the the tight lacedness of it all and the fetishization but essentially the edwardian and the victorian area was um had essentially moved into this kind of like tiny waist big boobs big hips aesthetic um and then after after the turn of the century the 20s started to happen and women started to kind of focus on boyish figures but like their main priority was more like exercising and dancing and fucking and having a good time so they wanted more they didn't want well bones that wasn't the need of control wasn't what they wanted they wanted to you know dance all night dance all night yeah it was you know and then smoke cigarettes and drink and have a good old fucking time Mm -hmm. and these women found girdles as a solution to kind of straighten their bodies still not a corset and it was more of an elastic version so you're, we're still having like an underwear full body showing and this was a way to again recreate beauty standards because there was still a beauty standard of slimness mm-hmm. and the girdle was to like still maintain straight lines mm-hmm. so again it's not that it was a corset still existed but it was in a, in a new more relaxed but still controlling of the the body mm-hmm. yeah. 
in some capacity. I uh, grew up watching the movie Thoroughly Modern Millie a lot. It's like about the 1920s and like women wanting to like go to the workforce and like be independent and whatever. And in the beginning scene, it's played, she's played by Julie Andrews. And in the beginning scene, Julie Andrews is like walking down the street and she's seeing everyone with their modern bobs and their modern outfits. And so she gets a modern outfit, but then she sees all the women with like their beads hanging straight. And you see, so basically like she needs a bra, like her tits are too big. She needs like one of these like garments. To, these like, girdles. Yeah. To make her, to make her beads hang straight. That movie's really racist. I should check it out just in case, even though, it, I mean, what movie isn't racist, honestly? Yeah. In the end, you could find tones of racism, sexism, something. Okay, we're going to skip ahead to post-war. World War II happened. Everybody's like, um, kind of like, woo, thank God, that's over. Um, and women are now kind of like looking to fashion like outside of the U.S. They're like, what is... Like, we're in the U.S. because U.S. dominates the media for somehow. But anyways, um, and women are, like, looking um, at European sex. And Dior, Christian Dior, becomes a big factor in this. And he has these bodices that are, like, bone dresses, essentially, without the corset. But it's giving the corset framing of, like, tiny waist, mm-hmm. big hips. Mm-hmm. The classic cocktail dresses that we know of the 50s, essentially. Mm-hmm. I, it's like, I love Dior. What was big during this time was, like, the individual pointy tit. You know, so like women were wearing basically full girdles, body formers that was like grabbing the tit, pushing them to each side and making them pointy um, as well as like keeping that waist thin. So it's kind of interesting, like hemlines were getting longer again and then waists were getting thinner Hmm. post-war or two. And of course, that kind of stays the same in the 60s a little bit too. Of course, the hippies are like, and the feminists were all, all that shit's happening. Um, alternative world, people were burning their bras, trying to look for all that. But what's happening in the 70s, too, is like they're starting to explore um, wearing it as outerwear. A lot of the punks were wearing um, the corset as an outerwear just to kind of be rebellious, of course, and to be like, whatever. And that's where Vivian Westwood kind of enters the scene and is amazing. But also, in general, you just kind of start to see the shift of outerwear being acceptable as – or underwear as being acceptable as outerwear. Mm -hmm. And something else that's becoming – we've already touched on a lot. Something else that's, like, toxic as fuck. As fuck. Like, there was a big issue with smoothness. Like, you're not allowed to jiggle. Your body is not allowed to jiggle, right? Like – Especially in the 50s and 60s, issues of control and respectability continued to preoccupy women. Flesh was not supposed to jiggle. One woman recalled, I remember panty girdles in the ninth grade in 1962. We were straight skirts without a girdle. Your fanny would move. Considered very crude. We had to wear girdles because God forbid someone would, should see it, something move. Wow. Jiggling was just not okay, okay? Don't you... And that makes sense because my mom did that whole, like, arm jiggle thing. I bet your mom did too, right? She'd be like, look, gain some weight, you know, because all moms have eating disorders. But anyways, and my mom would do that. And then she'd always move her arm and show it jiggle. And I'm, like, thinking to myself, I like, making me make the connection that jiggling is bad because she she's saying, right. she, like, she's pointing it out as right. – and I – 
Yeah. So I'm I'm getting that she probably had that context too. Um, now I'm like, jiggle all you want, jiggler. J- more jiggle, the better. Quite honestly. Yeah. Yes. Bodies are supposed to move around. Yeah. Yeah. I want to see that ass jiggle. That's all I'm saying. But other body parts can jiggle too. You yeah. know. Yeah. Arms can jiggle. It's fine. Yeah. It's telling what I'm telling myself because it's just like something I have to like learn too. Right. In addition, foundations were uh, criticized on the grounds that they were productive of negative sexual attitudes. Although the hippies stressed sexual liberation, while feminists decried sexual commodification, dieting was the main form of body sculpting. So there was this big shift mm. into going away from corsets. Mm-hmm. And focusing on the body, like I said, body sculpting. And dieting was the biggest way to body sculpt during this time. This is when, like, a lot of issues started to peak up. Um, and I think, like, they were a lot of – they were preoccupied for women for, all, like, a long time. But I think, like, the 50s and 60s really kind of gave way to, like, eating disorders. And then the 70s was just heightened because they were, like, you can't – you literally – they were starting to push dieting and exercises – the route, mm-hmm. you know, versus yeah. anything else. Um, and you can see that with, like, the Jane Fonda videos, which were classic um, and huge and made them – okay, so I don't know if you know the story about, like, Jane Fonda and why she made the, this exercise uh, videos in the 70s, um, which she was quoted as saying, I like to be close to the bone. Anyways, um, Jane Fonda, who I love, but also have critiques on, of course – um, married the, one of the guys from Chicago 8, 9, whatever they're called. You remember that movie that just recently came out? Mm-mm. It was about the Chicago trials. It was about, like, the protests that they had at, at the Democratic Party okay. of, like, this 1968. She married one of the guys that was, like, very pro-democracy, like, um, anti-Vietnam War, like, just very outspoken politically, um, but also kind of, like, a curmudgeon, like, neoliberal Democrat, like, didn't really care about women's liberation or anything like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyways, so they wanted to like like stop nuclear power and they had this whole campaign, but Jane Fonda and her husband needed money. So she was like, I'm going to make this um, video to so we can funnel all that money directly into our foundation. So like that's how she got famous was from those workouts? Oh, no. She got famous because she's her dad's like a famous uh, fucking – director and then she kind of fell into the world of acting as you do and she played various roles too like she's an actress before any of that but she was also outspoken she kind of like fell from the grace of god i mean i i recently listened to a whole podcast all jane ponda so i know a lot about her but she is a cool character but that is one of her first husbands but he started to resent her because he would write these smart books and she was making the most money from these exercise videotapes and he was just like oh I can't believe that you're just making your stupid exercise tapes. And he just got, they end up getting divorced because wow. men suck. They can't handle it. Jealous. Jealous, dude. Like literally he's just like, I'm too smart for all this. Like I just can't. Yeah. You get money, you get money. Um, by the 1980s, men and women also became, began to work out and build visible muscle tone. British Vogue informed readers that ideal fitness workout combines a- aerobic exercise with lightweight training. Adding reassuringly that working out with light weights will not overdevelop muscles and they become leaner and more contorted or more contoured. Um, also, there's something that's really funny about this period of Vogue, American and British Vogue, like 80s, 90s. 
they talk a lot about people's bodies and how they should look. There's a lot of quotes from Just Vogue exclusively talking about it. And, of course, it's thinner the better. Naomi Wolf puts it, Women's sense of liberation from the older constraints of fashion was countered by a new sinister relationship to their bodies. And by the 1990s, popular journalism increasingly featured articles and advertisements on plastic surgery or, like I said, body sculpting. No discussion of the female body can make real sense without getting a grip on the corset. That's what this quote of Susan Brown Miller said, because it was played a starring role in the body's history. Hmm. Yet the very concept of the body is more complicated than it appears. It is popularly believed that the fashion of the past constrained and deformed the body, while the 20th century gave birth to a free, natural body. Hmm. The corset is a perfect example of the kind of rigid, physically oppressive garment that we habitually contrast with the relaxed, liberating clothing of the present day, yet although the body is biologically entity and a product of evolution, it is always and also culturally mediated. Yeah, something to chew on. And that's where I'm going to kind of end on today. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great summary. It's like, yeah, that... Yeah, the hard body replaced the boned corset, essentially. Yeah. And nowadays. Now we, now we don't need corsets. All we have to do is work out all the time and not. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Or we could just start wearing corsets and do the opposite. Or just like be free or like try to learn to be free of like the fact that we should have any expectation for our bodies because we exist in them when we just have to. They're great because they're there mm-hmm. and they can do things. But. Yeah, that was a good history. Go Valerie and go Jack. I really think you should take a peek in this one day if you can, just because she's a great writer. Yeah, has she written anything else? I don't know. The Fashion Journal? Um, That's about it. Wait, so what is that? What is the Fashion Journal? The Fashion Journal is a journal, like a little journal for academic journal, <laughs> for academic articles cool. on yeah. fashion. Yeah, so they go Are into... Gonna... Are we going to submit to it one day? I was going to say that we should do that. Honestly, I think we get in. <laughs> Not to toot our own fucking horns, but I might know as much as Valerie still at this point. I read your book, baby. Um, but there's also this guy named Mr. Pink, I think. That's like a famous like modern day tight lace corsetry. He does like Dean Von Detter, you know, that burlesque girl. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And a bunch of like, he also did Mugler's insect stuff. Okay, other things she's written. Gothic, dark glamour, shoes, a lexicon of style, uh, China chic, East meets West, fashion, Italian style, fetish fashion, sex and power, women of fashion, 20th century designers. Yeah, like all her concepts are cool. Ooh, fashion and eroticism, ideals of feminine beauty from the Victoria era to, from the Victorian era to the jazz age. Yes. But anyways, that's it. I'm sorry I haven't hung out with you in the last two weeks. I'm here. You're going out of town this week. (laughs) I know. I'm going to be out of town. But I love you. I love you. Bye. Bye.